it's kind of understanding an environment and a landscape and that's that takes living here um and so and it means that you're thrown into a lot of things and so you're thrown into a culture and different ways of understanding resources the different ways of of communicating just different ways of doing everything and that is true of Arab culture and different landscapes that require different different solutions, but also a culture of how those solutions are enacted, a culture of um, NGOs and kind mm -hmm. of um, jargon that you need to learn when you are in these situations and groups. And so it is a learning process. Uh, when I came in here, I was told you're going to be, be working in this sector for nine months and when you learn you'll feel like you've had a great introductory course into water and so i could report that that feels true you've tuned in to how it looks from here life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and this month our guest is Jack Pearson, another young leader who, as a recent college graduate, is currently on a Fulbright study grant in Jordan. Jack and I spoke over Zoom, he in his apartment in Amman, and I in my closet, which is still doubling as a recording studio. Jack's undergraduate degree included studies in the history of science, microbiology, and English. In his study and research, he brings to bear his perspective and insight as a scholar born in the year 2000. For his senior thesis, Jack wrote a science fiction and fantasy novel exploring the ways human imperialism, industrialization, and classism can unfold into the future, particularly in their impact on the planet and its ecosystems. These days, Jack is learning Arabic and studying water conservation communication in Jordan, where water is precious, especially in these times of climate change. Hello, Jack. Hello. I'm so glad you could join us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's morning where I am, and it's evening where you are. Yes. I'm in Montana, and you're in Amman, Jordan. Yes. Well, I have a question that I like to start <laughs> the How It Looks From Here podcast with, and, and so just see what comes to mind. Since it's called How It Looks From Here, and that's based on the premise that every it looks different to everybody, how does the world look to you right now where you're sitting? The world looks vibrant i don't know if that's a a cheesy word in some ways but yeah i don't know it, it looks vibrant it looks um i'm spring has kind of hit where i am and so the winter was was somewhat short and not that cold but 
spring has still hit and now there's so many more people out in the streets and the sun is is kind of hitting the the buildings in Amman as it, it always does in the evening and it's one of my favorite things here but um but it was just I didn't understand how many people were inside because of the winter and now everyone's out and the streets are a buzz so it looks vibrant ah wonderful well what is it that got you to Jordan um I'm here on a Fulbright grant a Fulbright research grant so I just I graduated from undergrad last year, and now I'm here um, for one full year. So um, a Fulbright grant is a intercultural exchange. Um, you can either do English teaching or research. And so I'm a researcher. So I was here for three months doing Arabic study, and then I'm here for nine months doing research in water and water communication and conservation. Um, in Jordan. Well, that's something. Um, our, so what, in springtime, you know, here in the Yellowstone ecosystem, springtime means snow melt and big water. What does springtime look like in Jordan in terms of water? It's interesting. It's so the summer and the winter, uh, the summer is the dry season and the winter is the wet season. So it rains in the winter. Um, the Arabic word for winter, um, shitah, uh, which I'm not sure my pronunciation is great. Um, uh, colloquial can, colloquially can just mean rain here. Um, and so there's rain in the winter. It can really, really, when it rains, it pours and it can, mm. it can flood. And um, it's an interesting bit about the desert. Uh, but so now that we're in spring, the... Actually, I'm not sure. That's the beauty of living somewhere for the first time is I haven't been here for spring yet, but I've heard so many great things that the north of the country is just incredibly green. Um, and so I don't know if it rains more or kind of the what has been in the ground and has kind of had the fruit of being flooded over the winter a few times than kind of blooms. But I know that the spring is the prettiest season and that while the summers can be very hot and the winter can be called the kind of spring and fall are incredible. Oh, and so you get to see this. I get to see yeah. it. Yeah. When did you arrive, Jack? When did you arrive in Jordan? I arrived uh, in late August. So I've seen the fall, but that that's coming okay. out of summer. Um, and so there's uh -huh. not water on the ground. Um, there is not water on the ground. What? Yeah, what is the water situation in autumn for, for Amman, for all of Jordan, um, from what you've seen? Uh, in terms of rainfall, there there isn't any as as the as autumn goes on then it starts to um the, the rain starts to come in uh in terms of i don't know seasonally but whether the water situation is worse than it seems like it would be right um but overall jordan is one of the most water scarce countries on the planet by population um and so the it, it needs the rain it gets and so what what are you learning about um the challenges around water for Jordan, and uh, the I, I imagine you're seeing a lot of creativity around what to do to conserve water. Yeah, it's it's kind of understanding an environment and a landscape, and that's that takes living here. Um, and so, and it means that you're thrown into a lot of things. And so you're thrown into a culture and different ways of understanding resources, the different ways of, of communicating, just different ways of doing everything. And that is true of 
Arab culture and different landscapes that require different, different solutions, but also a culture of how the solutions are enacted, a culture of um, NGOs and kind mm -hmm. of um, jargon that you need to learn when you are in these situations and groups. And so it is a learning process. Uh, when I came in here, I was told you're going to be, be working in this kind of sector for nine months. And when you learn, you'll feel like you've had a great introductory course into water. <laughs> and, so I was, and I could report that that feels true. It's just such a uh -huh. big issue. And it, it really impacts every sector of the economy. Water truly is at the heart of the landscape. And that means that it's complex. It means that it affects energy and it affects food and everything else that humans and animals and the nature does. Do you have a sense that this shows up in the, I, you know, I don't know that you would be exposed to this yet, but in the, the kind of, um, I don't know, spiritual, mystical, even educational initiatives, initiatives and, and uh, ways of making sense there in that country, what are you learning about the way water moves the language or moves, makes people think? It's interesting. I, um, I think the thing that I've noticed that can most apply to your question is that the culture, the cultural um, approach to water is very different than my own and our own to some extent. Um, as, and I've noticed this, um, so I'm, I'm an avid swimmer. And so I wanted to find a place to swim while I was here, which was an interesting task for a water researcher in the desert. And, <laughs> and so, um, and so I finally found one. it took a few tries. And so I, I go swimming occasionally. And I think what I've noticed is kind of through observing how people interact with swimming pools or another place is like the Turkish baths or the hammams are another place where you can encounter pools, not for lap swimming, but for bathing. And I've kind of, I've been looking at the culture here as kind of a bathing type of culture in regards to water. It's seen as cleanliness. I think, um, when people, people wash a lot, the gym, like the locker room before you get to the pool is always being cleaned. Like I, at, at all times, I've never seen it not being cleaned. Um, there's, um, hmm. before uh, Muslims pray, they always have to clean themselves with water um, every single time. And so it, uh, and then the, obviously the other place where you see water is the Turkish bathhouses. And so it's just a constant cleaning. Whenever you see water, it's usually, when, whenever you see water on the street, it's either because it's rain and there's some puddles or the puddles are from shopkeepers who have cleaned out the floor or something and or or the sidewalk that they're on it's water is approached in kind of a bathing cleanliness sense um while in our own culture um like swimming has been considered a martial art since like greece and japan and like medieval japan it was cons and so lap swimming kind of has this kind of patrol element to it oh, of just back and forth and you kind of stake out your place and so in in the pool kind of like in, in the swimming pool, part of it is just kind of open swim. And then there's only a few lanes. And so if those lanes are taken, then you kind of have to try to swim in the open section and doing laps 
like kind of among bathers that you kind of feel this cultural disconnect between how you approach water. So interesting. I, you know, I noted that word patrol. Um, what a different metaphor than the one of we must cleanse ourselves before we pray. And may I, you know, those just came to mind for me, and perhaps that's unfairly stark. But yeah, how interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, it's, yeah, I think that I think that we all we also have a a type of cleanliness ritual of getting in the water and swimming, but it definitely does have those different sources. Wow, very very interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Um, of yeah, so I was gonna. Um, ask you too about what has been most surprising to you um, in in your research or in your just cruising around and maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, I think hmm, I think most surprising, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep this water related because it's just what I am thinking about while I'm here is how quickly water kind of it water sets the norm you just you just adapt to where to it just you can't not see water as normal and when you and how you approach it it's just i don't know what it is but it's kind of it just enacts normalness and so how much water you use how you use water it just kind of recedes into the back of your brain and it becomes obvious and and so that it's been really fascinating. Um, that's kind of one point, but from a cultural level, how normal things become so quickly. Like um, on top of my apartment building, there are multiple large tanks and those tanks hold your water and water isn't expensive here, which is a little interesting. It's heavily subsidized by the government. It's not expensive. Yeah, it's not expensive. Yeah. Um, huh. And and I can I can come back to that because it's an interesting dilemma. But um, but water is in these large tanks, and so you I only get water pumped to my apartment once a once a week, is when the line is turned on, and it just fills this tank up, and then I have that for the for the week. And if you run out, you run out. My roommate and I haven't yet, um, but and so and you have to turn the water heater on before you for like. 45 minutes before you take a shower, you have to have a different, um, if you aren't going to drink the tap water, which I don't, um, you have to have your own kind of like water filter and you get the water delivered. It just becomes, it becomes so usual. And if, so that, that's been really fascinating. The other really surprising thing to me was, um, I was down in the South of the country where there's a little bit of coastline on the Red Sea. And it's, um, it's a large destination for scuba diving and snorkeling, and it has coral reefs. And it's this kind of interesting kind of juxtaposition of desert with water that you can't drink, but it's still just kind of everywhere. And it has these beautiful coral and almost floral ecosystems. Um, and so my family visited and we went snorkeling and it was just, it was incredible. And so just to kind of see that and then pop up out of the water and just see kind of a like barren mountainy desert was um, with, with some de development along the coast is, it's just, it's fascinating. And so uh, was the water cool? 
Yeah, it was a little cold in winter. Um, we wore like kind of half length wet wetsuits, but it's the Red Sea, which I, I don't think it's that cold in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, j just to add this on, I don't want to talk about this too much, but another really surprising moment for me was I was in Arabic class and I was talking to my teacher and she said that she didn't know how to swim and had had um, had a negative experience growing up and was really afraid of swimming pools. And but that she one of her kind of bucket list goals was to go scuba diving in Aqaba. And I was kind of I was just very perplexed and flummoxed by this idea of I really don't want to go to a swimming pool, but I also really want to go scuba diving. And and she, and apparently she said that she said friends who don't know how to swim and don't want to, but have gone scuba diving. And so oh, I, that, that was a very surprising point. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting what you're saying about it becomes normal. The way that people relate with water mm -hmm. in that place becomes normalized for you. And so this equation of I don't want to know how to swim, but I do want to scuba. <laughs> Works. <laughs> yeah. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. Well, I, I know that you, um, you're starting to work looking at national parks in Jordan in addition to this water uh, focus. And in that work, I think you're going to be focusing on the way that water figures in those public lands. Have you begun that? And what, what do you know about this part of your experience? Um, I've somewhat begun. I'm I've been approaching people to ask for access to documents and archives, um, and I've gone to a couple of them. And the reason why I want to look into these is um, I studied like history of science and environmental history in college, and environmental history has a large body of research on the history of national parks and why they're created and what they are, and this kind of bounding in of nature. Um, with borders and how that fits into the 18th, 19th centuries. But there's there's no work on Jordan's national parks and they're fascinating to me. And national parks is kind of a catch-all term. They're protected areas or wildlife reserves or mm -hmm. um, especially because how you look at national parks or protected areas is how you kind of conceptualize nature of what it should be or what it, yeah, what it, what you're protecting can often have that connotation of what it should be. Um, and they can be nationalistic, they can kind of embody all these other political um, things. And so the interest, the fascinating part of Jordan's National Parks is, one, they're created post-colonization, um, post once Jordan has its independence, which is somewhat rare for National Parks. They usually kind of have this carryover of kind of like colonial game reserves can become national parks, but that's not true in Jordan, um, as, as far as I know. And then the other thing is that many of them pump in water for the animals. Uh -huh. um, so uh, Shaomari Nature Reserve is the first one created in Jordan, 
um, and it's to kind of save the Arabian oryx, which is um, kind of national. It's the national animal of Jordan. Um, it's created in, in 1975, and um, and after that, you have it's right next to these Azraq wetlands, which are these beautiful, large wetlands, which are places for uh, migrating birds and animals, and the overdrawing of the aquifer here in Jordan has reduced the amount of water in those wetlands to, it, it basically destroyed the wetlands um, in the 90s, I believe. And so you have this park that's undergone a complete change in the ecosystem around it to the point where now water is pumped into this park, not to irrigate the grass and stuff that the oryx and the um, and the other kind of wild fauna live on, but just for the drinking water um, at the moment. Or they have, there's other places in the country where the water is kind of pumped out um, to make um, a place for migrating birds, but the water is kind of treated, reused water. And then now the Osric wetlands, I believe that water is pumped to them to kind of maintain this ecosystem. And so this type of, um, I tend to go, I tend to be long-winded about this, but I'm really fascinated in how you kind of conceptualized a natural system where you have such a fundamental human presence in the wildness of we are maintaining this through kind of a pumping of, of groundwater into these areas or a, a reuse of used water. And so what happened there in the wetlands was that it was really the demand of a growing population I believe so. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And and so that drained the wetlands, and now there's a desire, because they are set aside, if I'm following right, um, because they are set aside as, as public lands, there's a desire for them to look like wetlands. Yes. And, yeah, and so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, so there, yeah, there's a desire there to maintain kind of a, a natural heritage, um, and... Heritage is a complex idea. Yeah. Yeah, this is fascinating. And I think it would be far more stark in a desert environment, primarily desert environment like Jordan, um, that you have, I I think this is how you let in, um, people have this notion of what public land looks like. And so Mm. then there's this fulfilling of what that notion is. Is that what you were saying? That, That... we want them to look a certain way and to serve a certain function in in our mythos. Yes, I, I yeah, I think that's true. I think the um, yeah, I'm not sure how public of lands they are. Like, I'm not sure if you could just go camp on this area. You can you can go on tours and you can and be there. But it yeah, it's um, and and a lot of the tourism here for um, for protected areas is international. Um, which also adds an interesting uh-huh. kind of aspect of how how national is your national park. Um, but yeah, it, it, it provides a lens to look at um, to look at culture through what a culture imagines nature to be. Very interesting. I think that will be just fascinating to follow your work as you learn more about this and Thank pursue you. this. Yeah. Yeah, I also know, Jack, that you spent some time in your undergraduate studies studying the microbiology of ice. 
So there's a little contrast for you. So when you put together your studies of the microbiology of ice with what you're, you're learning about this, these desert ecosystems, and this is a, a little twist, what do you see or what are you getting that might be of help in the face of climate change and with, you know, initiatives around climate repair? Does anything come to mind? I think, I think two things come to mind, which is one, that you find life everywhere, whether it's frozen in a, in a block of ice or in the middle of the desert. Um, you just kind of have to look through a microscope. It might be smaller. It might, be, it might not be apparent. So you have to kind of see with new eyes if you can. Um, and then two is how many eyes are on that ecosystem. There's so many people working on both sides of this. There's so many people doing ice research that I've ran into. There's so many people working on climate change and how it's going to affect desert eco ecosystems and how you respond in the face of that. Um, is that there's, this isn't that small of a community that I found. It's very large. Um, and so... Yeah, that, that's been true on both sides of the spectrum. That's very comforting to me to hear. It's like even though there are the political winds and weather blow through, that what you're seeing and what you're experiencing is that there are a lot of people who are really paying attention and trying to learn in both of these ecosystems and everything in between, I guess. Yeah, yes, there's people are people are always looking into it. I think it's... it's um, Sometimes the challenge is, well, I think the, the, first, the first priority is paying attention. And there's a lot of people paying attention. Um, and then the second, the second point is to get the people, is, the, is getting others to pay attention. But I think if you show an earnest interest in your topic, um, that part becomes easier of kind of, yeah, of getting other people involved and excited about progress and change and reacting to like having having some responsibility and kind of focusing in on the response of that word. That's a, that strikes me as so wonderful. One of the things that um, a friend of mine who was born and raised in South Korea and then his family immigrated when he was eight to the U.S. Um, he he said, and, and that's irrelevant, actually, on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm sure it has something to do with what I'm going to tell you. Um, he said in a conversation we had some years ago that he had given up trying to uh, directly change how people behave, you know, what people do. And instead, he was living his life in a way that inspired and enlivened and energized him. And what he found is that people would go, whoa, I want some of that. And they would, they would say, so what are you seeing? What are you doing? What? And in that way, they would come towards conversations about the things that are important to him, which are, you know, deep relationship and, and integrity. Um, you know, which is a pretty general subject on the one hand, but m mighty nice on the other hand. And uh, so, and they would change themselves. So it sounds like that's what you're saying. Am I over-interpreting or do I have you right? I think, I think you have me right. Yeah. 
Yeah, one of the things I like to ask towards the end of a podcast is, you know, what suggestions do you have for people about how, how, from from your experience, clearly, but about ways of making it through in these times of uncertainty. And that would seem a great thing. But what else comes to mind? What suggestions would you give to people of all ages, but in particular to people who are finishing up in college and about to head off? Be ready to get a lot of new knowledge and just kind of integrate it in. It's kind of just be a sponge. There's so many people to learn from and especially in in my experience of kind of coming to a new country and moving to the Middle East right out of college it's just been be okay knowing nothing you will learn so much and it will probably complicate your opinions and it'll just it'll and that is okay it's just it's a time of learning and the, the, the doing and the giving people opinions on subjects can come later. It, especially, especially with people in, in my case, but doing when you don't know what to do can do harm instead of good. And so if you can, if you can learn from the people around you, take the lessons of the landscape and the environment and really understand where you are, you'll be in a much better situation. And then if you can ground that in your day-to-day life and say, mm, I'm, paying, I'm paying attention to this. How is this affecting my day-to-day life in not a research way, not in a global policy way, but in a how I go about my day? Because then you can find some really interesting insights of, oh, I, I'm especially in, in my case with water, because then you realize, oh, water, it's easy to forget about. And that's can be dangerous. And so when you have this attention, don't kind of bypass your day-to-day life, but kind of find insight there to apply. Because that's where you can find insight to bring to a larger community. Yeah, no, I, I'm sitting here, let's see, I, I te- technically qualify as a boomer. And I think you technically qualify as Gen Z. And I, I'm, I thinking, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> as, um, as I listen that everything you say, I go, yeah, I need to do that. You know? So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I, yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Jack. It's wonderful to see you there in Jordan. And it's wonderful to get a chance to benefit from the process that you're engaged in. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk with you and be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. You can learn more about Jack and his Fulbright Award at the link in the show notes. We've also included an article he wrote on the Jordan River. Finally, you'll find several references for articles Jack recommends to take you more deeply into considerations of water, ecology, and climate solutions. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. 
And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was produced by me, Mary Claire. Editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson, and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.